They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife, Caitlin, and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This month, we read Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Bastarica. Sometime in the near future, animals have become unsuitable for human consumption. To replace animal meat on the market, cannibalism is the hot new food trend. This book contains graphic depictions of violence, cruelty to animals, rape, murder, and obviously cannibalism. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This book is not for the faint of heart. Now take out your red pens, because we have a couple of notes. Tender as the Flesh is a novel published in 2020 by Argentinian author Agustina Bazterica. It was originally published in Spanish and has since been translated into nine languages. Bazterica describes her novel as a commentary on the way humans consume each other, both figuratively in the capitalist and consumerist society way, and through literal violence. This book won the Primo Clarín de Novela Prize, and received international attention for its disturbing premise and publicity that alleged this book will make you vegan. Does it live up to the hype? Let's find out. Our story follows Marcos Tejo, the second in command at his local slaughterhouse, and he hates his life. Very recently, Marcos and his wife Cecilia lost their son to SIDS, after which Cecilia becomes very depressed and moves out of their home to stay with her mother. Meanwhile, Marcos's father is slowly succumbing to dementia in a nursing home, the financial burden of which falls entirely to Marcos. To top it all off, a worldwide pandemic has made all animals in the world inedible and deadly. Because of this, Marcos has to adapt to the new special meat industry, rearing, slaughtering, and selling humans as livestock for consumption. Things take a turn for Marcos when he is given a gift from one of his work colleagues, a captivity-bred female human for him to raise, slaughter, or sell as he wishes. The equivalent in today's world of being gifted a cow, except she's a person. While he is at first conflicted about what to do with the female, Marcos eventually decides to do the one thing he isn't allowed to do, have sex with her. Because she is technically livestock in the eyes of the law, this is legally bestiality, and if Marcos is caught, the penalty will be death in the slaughterhouses for both of them. After sleeping with the woman in his barn, Marcos becomes attached to her. He names her Jasmine because he thinks that's what she smells like, and lets her live in his house. He teaches her to use human devices like the television, the shower, and the toilet. And before too long, Jasmine is pregnant. Marcos isn't sure how he's going to explain this suddenly obtained baby to everyone, but he's excited at a second chance at fatherhood nonetheless. When Jasmine is near the end of her pregnancy, everything goes wrong for Marcos at once. First, his father dies, which both devastates him, but also provides him a sense of emotional and financial freedom. Very shortly after, an attack on the slaughterhouse by hungry scavengers, the homeless and destitute who can't afford special meat, results in the death of an employee. As if he didn't have enough on his plate, his wife keeps dropping hints that she might want to come home, and that would be really inconvenient with the pregnant contraband human in his house. Unfortunately, when Jasmine goes into labor, Marcos realizes quickly that something is very wrong. He has no choice but to seek the help of the only medical professional he can trust, his wife Cecilia, who's a registered nurse. 
While Cecilia is initially horrified that he slept with a product, she overcomes her disgust long enough to help Jasmine through her labor and delivers a healthy baby boy. Her purpose now fulfilled, Jasmine is sent away to slaughter, while Marcos and Cecilia claim the baby as their own. Now that we've covered the bones of the story, it's time to go over our notes. But first, a short ad break. Welcome back to a couple of notes. Let's dive in to our analysis on Tender is the Flesh. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the positives first. We always do that. We always try to talk about the positives first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll go over how we felt about the premise a little more heavily when we get to our red pin notes. <laughs> yeah. So one thing we need to talk about with the positives is one way that this book was sort of pitched to me, to most people, is that it's a disturbing book. It's it's a gross book. It'll make you feel sick to your stomach. It'll be really uncomfortable. And in that regard, yeah, it succeeds. This book goes into extreme detail about just every bit of butchering and eating people, as well as some, like, really intense moments of other kinds of violence towards people. There's also a lot of cruelty towards animals, because with the animals all being sick, they, you know, they, they're killing all the animals, and it... Yeah, it's very graphic. It is adequately disturbing. It has fulfilled that promise to its readers, yes. which is a point in its favor. <laughs> yes, we, we always say that one of the key things that makes a book good is whether it delivers on the promise it makes. Mm-hmm. One of the promises this book made to its readers was, you will be disturbed, and I was disturbed. Mm-hmm. Every time I picked up this book, I was disturbed. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Mm-hmm. I will also like to point out that it is a blissfully quick read. That's true. We blew through this in about a week. We did. You know, and usually it takes us about a month to get through one of the books for this podcast. That's why we post once a month. Mm-hmm. It was short, which in this case I think worked in its favor. Mm-hmm. Also, the parts that are about the meat industry specifically, like the parts where they go into the slaughtering process and the butchering process shockingly accurate like well researched I'm not sure or whether or not that was necessarily shocking since when we looked into an interview by the author she did talk about how she put a lot of work into researching the meat industry for this book and it shows that's true so not shocking but very accurately researched you know it reminded me a lot of you know one of those documentaries we had to watch in high school that was all about like factory farming or whatever that that, you know, looking back now, you're like, yeah, that was definitely a biased documentary, but it would show you, you know, the pigs on the hooks getting slaughtered and stuff. And it, you know, it describes that to a T. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, you did your research on this. You know how a slaughterhouse operates. Mm-hmm. And you you found a pretty good way to be like, how would we adjust this slightly if it was humans instead of cows or pigs? Mm-hmm. I, I like that they didn't try to be like, and then also here are the people that we use like chicken, because it wouldn't really work the same way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking about the promises the author made, 
I know when we first initially saw the advertisement for this book and we were kind of like, yes, <laughs> we got to read this next because it sounds crazy. We read the premise and we thought, this is vegan propaganda, right? Th yeah. This is a propaganda novel. And I think the main reason for that was the, the summary uses the phrase, you know, it says all the animals have become inedible and then it says, even though the world could easily become vegetarian, blah, 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 ah, cannibalism. And it was this kind of dog whistle of like, hey, psst, you there, eating meat. You know how easy you could be vegetarian, but I bet you'd rather eat people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's definitely easier for some than others to become vegan. Yeah, but that was, that was not the author's summary. That was the summary that was on the blog where we discovered this. Yeah, and when we um, actually went looking for an interview with the author, we found out that this book is actually not at all meant to be vegan propaganda, and she actually doesn't believe that people should be forced or pressured into veganism, mm -hmm. which I agree with as a chosen vegetarian. Yeah. So I'm like, let me just take a step back and think, okay, so that's not the slant this book is taking. The purpose that she was trying to get at was bringing awareness to human trafficking and how modern-day consumerism often secretly relies on overseas slave labor. Mm -hmm. Which is a very legitimate issue to want to bring to the public conscious, and I respect her for the attempt. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we read this very long interview by her about how this book wasn't just about the meat industry, it was also about not only just slave labor, but also things like human trafficking and prostitution mm -hmm. and how, you know, human trafficking is currently the third largest illegal business in the country uh, or in the, yeah, in the world, actually, mm -hmm. right behind illegal arms dealership and illegal drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are people who they didn't choose to be trafficked and it's predominantly women and girls and so she really wanted to play that up, which is why we have, you know, this character of Jasmine, who is a woman who is being used for breeding. And we do have several references to women being used for breeding in this story. You know, and she talks about other things like that. So she very clearly had a message she was going for that didn't have just to do with be vegetarian or you're basically eating people. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that was more what the media and especially the American media grabbed onto in this book as opposed to what she was pushing for. Yeah, and we don't usually try to get any background information on the books that we read beforehand so that we can go in with a clear mind, but I thought it was important in this situation because that's going to cloud how we read it, mm -hmm. already knowing that it's been labeled vegan propaganda. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I definitely went into it with that initial bias. I saw this and I was like, this is somebody who saw that PETA ad of Pamela Anderson <laughs> and where she's all marked up like cuts of beef and said that'd be a great book. Mm -hmm. One other really positive note I will give this, mm -hmm. there was a consistent theme that she used. There were a lot of themes that she used that didn't work, but one theme that she used that really worked was the theme of voice. Mm -hmm. this, this author, she describes every character's voice in great detail the first time you meet them. And this is then reflected in the fact that the meat people, the products, they call them, we'll call them products because that's what they're called in the book. The products have their, their vocal cords removed so they can't speak. And that is part of what separates them from, you know, the humans that are allowed to not be meat. Mm -hmm. 
is that, you know, these ones can't talk. They have their vocal cords completely removed. So Jasmine, despite the fact that he kind of starts treating her more like a person, she is never able to speak to him. She is never able to say things like, no, I don't want to sleep with you. Hey, maybe stop locking me in the barn. Um, give me my baby back. Things like that in the way that everyone else in this book is able to vocalize the things that they want and need. And it's a good juxtaposition to the fact that Marcos feels silent throughout this entire book. He doesn't talk much, mm-hmm. and dialogue is used very sparingly. So it was a very well-used theme. She uses dialogue as a tool, and she uses voice as a tool in a very good way to essentially bring out that she is trying to give voice to the voiceless in this book. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. You know, I think that theme resonated on a different level because as an autistic person, you do kind of see those of us who can't speak being dehumanized. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that theme really came through for me because I'm kind of used to the misconception that if you can't speak, you're less of a person Mm -hmm. than someone who can advocate for themselves. Absolutely, yeah. So I very much resonated with that. That's... That's a perspective I didn't even think on, so I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're totally right. So, that's the things that were good in this book that draw you in, that keep you reading. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about everything else. Let's take out our red pins and edit. Let's take out our <laughs> red pins and edit. <laughs> Alright, so we can't go any further without talking about the glaring levels of unbelievability in this book. Yeah. Like, that would consistently stop us in our tracks while we were reading this book. Mm-hmm. Was how unbelievable all of this seemed. And it really gives you perspective as to why dystopian novels usually focus their leads around people that are either bad guys turned good guys or regular people turned rebels, but someone who is invested in fighting the system. Because when you're just a brick in the wall who doesn't care about changing anything, it's really not as interesting to follow that person as a character. And that is who Marcos, our main character, is. He is a cog in this machine. Mm -hmm. He is just a guy who works for a slaughterhouse. He doesn't like the new special meat. That's what they call human meat in this. They call it special meat to kind of like destigmatize what they're doing. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like the special meat industry, but he still actively participates in it and never does anything to try and change it or stop it. He doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't eat meat most of the time. And he kind of doesn't even believe that the pandemic that happened was real. Which is another thing that we're going to discuss. Yeah, we're going to discuss that this book came out in 2020. It was written right before COVID. So reading this now in a post-COVID world is very, very weird, and we will discuss that (laughs) in more depth in a minute. But yeah, Marcos, he he has no desire to try and change anything. He's not particularly high up. He is just a guy who, he worked in the meat industry before this all started, and so now he works in the meat industry after. It's the only industry he's ever worked in, so this is what he does. And that does make the whole thing kind of weird to read because he just kind of accepts that this is the way things are and he doesn't like them so we're expected to do that as well 
which means we have more time actually to sit and question everything about this world that we're given. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with a high action dystopian where you're having to like fight the powers that be and dismantle a whole system or whatever, you don't always have as much time to sit and question like, well, you know, how did they get people to agree to this? You know, in something like The Hunger Games, where Katniss is actually fighting in The Hunger Games, The Hunger Games has been going on for as long as she's been alive. Mm-hmm. You don't have as much time to sit there and think, how did they get people to agree to donate two of their children every year to the slaughter? I think in that case, the people with guns just came and took them and they didn't really have any power. Yeah. And that lends an element of believability that this book lacks. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is... You know, as the story goes on, we learn more and more about it. Mm-hmm. In this, we don't really learn much about how they convinced people to do this, aside from the idea that we know it's been maybe 20 years since this all started. Because he was still actively working in the animal meat industry right when he graduated high school. And now he's middle-aged. Mm-hmm. So it has only been a couple decades. And this is not, like, an isolated, just one country thing. No, this really, like, speaks to why most dystopians are isolated small communities. Mm -hmm. Or, like, one country tops. Because they expect us to believe that the entire world got on board with cannibalism in less than 20 years. In less than 20 years, yeah. And, you know, we get a few descriptions of the steps that happen. We learn that one of the reasons that this started was because when all the animals got sick the meat industry was failing. And obviously the meat industry is a very large industry. Big beef and big pork and big chicken, you know, you don't think Tyson's gonna just go under because suddenly they can't make chicken nuggets anymore, so they're gonna fight for some other option. And so the argument is that these big companies came forward and were like, hey, we can't sell beef anymore. We need an alternative. And rather than being like, let's get into tofu or something. Or eating insects. <laughs> or insects. Yeah, that's one thing that's never discussed is that they specifically state insects are not a threat in this world. Mosquitoes, cockroaches, anything like that, we see them and it is decided they are not a threat. You cannot get sick from insects. And yet no one at any point in this book <laughs> thought that maybe we should try any of the more than 20 species of edible insects, probably much more globally, Yeah, that we could have used as a replacement for meat production. Yeah, no one was That like, would have been a much smoother transition than convincing the general public that it's okay to eat people. Yeah, no one was like, we can't sell beef anymore, let's try a cricket burger. Mm-hmm. Fish is also never mentioned. It is never established whether or not fish is still around or acceptable. So we, we don't know if like, you know, sushi is out. I think we have to assume that it is because otherwise it's just too unbelievable that people would have been like, well, you know, I could eat fish, but let's eat people. Yeah. If I can't have my bacon, god damn it! (laughs) Like, the people in this world. What part of a people do you think is bacon? I guess around the belly area? I guess love handles are bacon. (laughs) But the people in this world, basically, like, the meat industry is going under, and every politician in the world agrees 
it's better to eat our neighbors than to become vegans. Mm -hmm. And everyone, except like maybe one guy in the meat industry, is 100% cool with killing people. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone who works at a slaughterhouse is secretly Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, they're all ready for this. They're all like, what? We get to start butchering people instead of cows? So ready for this. The only thing that people seem to have an actual issue with is when the government's like, hey, we found out cats and dogs can get sick too, so you need to turn in your animals for mass euthanasia. And then people are like, my pets? What the fuck? <laughs> and I just don't buy that the whole world will get behind this. Like, you're seriously telling me that everyone in the world was totally cool with killing their pets and eating their neighbors because of a pandemic. We couldn't get the whole world to wear masks because of a pandemic. <laughs> it's accurate. <laughs> yeah, and we get glimpses of how different countries have handled this. We never actually find out what country Marcos is in. We assume it's Argentina, but she kind of purposely avoids saying. Whenever there's a reference to Marcos's country, she just refers to it as his country or his government. Mm -hmm. But just based on like context clues, like the fact that they speak Spanish and the fact that she's Argentinian, things like that, it can be kind of assumed that this is probably Argentina or somewhere in South America. But she doesn't like explicitly say it. But she references other countries. She references Romania at one point. She references India at one point. Like, she makes a reference to the fact that India, up until this point, has been importing meat. But they haven't been exporting meat. And so people are really excited now because all of a sudden India is going to start exporting meat. And so people are going to get to eat Indians. And they're going to get to know what an Indian person tastes like. And it's like, it's been 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's been 20 years since they told you couldn't eat a hamburger. And all of a sudden you're like, I bet Indian people taste great. <laughs> what? Like, it's he talks about the transition and he talks about how difficult, quote, it was. But that couldn't have taken more than a five-year span, just judging by how old he seems to be. Yeah, he even talks about things like, he talks about this one, one of the women he knows is a butcher. And he talks about how she slowly, over time, expanded her butchery because she had this butcher shop where she sold meat, and when she started selling human products instead of animal products, she started with things like ground meat and slices of things. And she would always label them the same as a meat product. She would sell a steak, she would sell a chop, she would sell a ground something. Yeah, they talk about how they've like renamed the portions of human after a mix of like pig and cow products, yeah. And then she started selling, you know, organs. She, she would throw out a kidney or a liver or something. Then she started adding in things that were noticeably human, like hands and feet. But she was calling them trotters. Mm -hmm. You know, like pig's feet. And, you know, now she's selling, like, just full-on heads and eyeballs and brains and whatever. And people are just super into it. And he, he talks about how, like, it was mostly because it's super expensive. Special meat is very expensive. So which talks, means it's very impractical. Which means how did we get the general public on board with this mm -hmm. if most people aren't going to be able to afford it anyway? Yeah, so he talks about how these, like, servants would come in and be like, I need to buy some special trotters. It's not for me, it's for my boss. Or whatever. Like, there's clearly still a taboo around this. But at the same time, like, it's a major industry, 
that is everywhere. And it's not just meat either, they're making leather out of human skin, they are using humans for experimentation because they had to kill all the animals so they can't use animals for things like medical or, uh, you know, cosmetics or anything like that for experimentation in any of those regards anymore. And you know there's gonna be a reference to Nazi doctors. <laughs> there is a reference to Nazi doctors, yeah. They're using humans for everything that animals were once used for. Or because there are no animals anymore. Because it wasn't just that the animals became inedible. It was like, you get nipped or scratched by an animal, you're gonna get this virus and die. So we're gonna go attack the environment with flamethrowers? Yeah. Because that's gonna work out great for us in the long run. Yeah, which is another major plot hole here. If all the animals are dead now, if you killed all the birds and all the cows and all the horses and whatever else, and they're all gone, the planet will die. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't seem to see any evidence of that. And we get the idea that they didn't kill all the animals, because we do see a couple of birds here and there. We see, we see a little family of dogs that's living in the wild. Yeah, I think they just like pushed animals out of society. Yeah, it seems like they, they slaughtered a lot of animals in mass. And then beyond that, they're just trying to keep animals away. And they also do stupid stuff like humans wear, humans carry umbrellas everywhere now because they're afraid that like, a bird is just gonna freaking attack them like ah! they're afraid a bird's gonna poop on their head and they'll get the virus that way yeah 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 it's not really fully explained how the virus spreads so maybe that's true maybe it isn't but marcos doesn't believe it yeah but then at the same time it's like well if a mosquito bites an animal and gets the virus and then bites you you're not gonna get it it's not like malaria yeah, like it, it couldn't be because like if mosquitoes got a hold of a virus that was 100% deadly, humans would be so screwed. We'd be fucked. It's not even in the realm of believability at all that this could affect the insects. <laughs> yeah. So, so we were just being dumb when we decided to jump to cannibals. <laughs> yeah, so we're not eating the insects. We're destroying the ecosystem. No idea how this virus exactly works. Might even be a hoax. Some people think it's a hoax. <laughs> and can I just say, no. <laughs> This would not be a hoax. The amount of people worldwide you would have to bribe to pass off this hoax, the amount of doctors and scientists who study disease and politicians, it's the age of social media in this book. It would be so obvious to prove that this virus wasn't real. It would be easy. So I don't believe that it could possibly believably be a hoax. And the argument they make is overpopulation. They say the reason that this hoax could, this could be a hoax, the reason that somebody would create this hoax, is that there was overpopulation and food shortages and whatever. Keeping in mind that this is not supposed to be set in any like distant future. This is supposed to be set now-ish, like 20 years in the future. There's no technology that we don't have. There's no like major world issues that we don't have. It's all meant to be set relatively present day-ish. But the idea is that basically like, overpopulation and hunger and homelessness and whatever were such a problem that allegedly all the world's leaders came together and decided you know what's a great way to solve these problems let's just eat the poor people they took eat the rich and they were like no no eat the poor that's the dumbest <laughs> idea in the world because this crippled many major industries so many. this caused mass unrest Overpopulation is not at this point yet. No. Overpopulation is a myth. That's a hot take that may be true, but we're not going to get into that. We won't get into it here, but just... 
Google it, guys. Um, <laughs> anyways. And this could be, and you're telling me all of this could be disproven with a TikTok post. <laughs> Seriously. Because they're telling you all the animals have simultaneously contracted this disease. Like, we can't protect any of them. How many people do you think would be posting social media posts of, like, guys, I was bitten by my cat today. Am I gonna die? And then, like, two months later, I didn't die, guys. <laughs> I didn't even get sick. I'm fine. People are, like, so suspicious nowadays that I can believe people will question this. I just don't think the governments of the world would be able to pull this off. Yeah. And I think it would do way more harm than good. Also, the implication here, then, would mean that all the governments of all the world, all the countries... I don't even know how many countries there are in the world. Over a hundred. Like, I think it's 200-ish. Yeah, I know there's hundreds. So you're telling me all... 200-something countries of the world, all those world governments, including the ones that are currently, like, at odds with themselves and having civil wars and whatever, all came together and agreed on this one thing. This was the thing we could all get behind? Cannibalism? Cannibalism? Cannibalism is the secret to world peace? (laughs) (laughs) You're telling me that everyone from Russia and China to America to, like, Australia and New Zealand... And then all the way over to, like, freaking Iceland, all the way down to, like, Zimbabwe and Ghana. Like, they all came together, and they were like, cannibalism. Genius. Why haven't we all discussed this before? We couldn't agree on things like slavery, women's rights, LGBT people, the economy. We couldn't agree on, like, capitalism versus communism versus some other kind of political structure. We couldn't agree on democracy, but cannibalism. This one, we can all get behind. I'm not buying it. No. And the deeper you go, the less believable it becomes. Because they give you the, well, we only eat eat people who are designated as food, Mm -hmm. and then we implant heavy censorship laws to try to make people forget. But also we hunt humans for sport, yes. including non, including celebrities who are not designated as, as food. And you expect us to believe these two things can coexist at the same time? Yeah, that's another world-building thing they throw in there, is that apparently one industry that has grown is, you know, the hunting industry was like, well, shit, if we're going to kill all the animals, there's not going to be any game to hunt for sport anymore. We need to hunt some things. And so some countries, not all countries got on board with this. This is the one thing they couldn't agree on. (laughs) But some countries were like, hey, we'll just use the livestock that we're already breeding to eat and we'll let people hunt them. But then they throw in this added thing that if you're like a famous person and you're in debt, you can do this like most dangerous game kind of thing where basically you go to a hunting reserve And based on how much money you owe, you agree to stay on the hunting reserve as prey for a period of time. It could be a couple hours, it could be a few days, it could be a few weeks, whatever. You agree to stay, and if you survive, your debt is paid off. So, like, there's a whole scene where Marcos goes to meet with the owner of one of these game reserves, and the guy's talking about how they've got this famous rock star, or, like, an older rock star, like, Steven Tyler or someone is here. And they're like... Like, yeah, he's been here for four days. He's only got a few hours left. Oh, nope, he's been shot. And then they all eat him together. All right, and that's the only time Marcos ever eats meat in this or in this book because he's like, well, I've got to I've got to eat Steven Tyler or else 
These people, These people that work with my boss will be mad at me. <laughs> yeah, I could cost us business if I don't eat Steven Tyler's butt cheek. <laughs> that's that's explicitly what he eats, is the butt cheek. And fingers. <laughs> and fingers, yes, he eats some fingers. Um, and there's, like, a whole moment where they're all kind of, like, being low-key homophobic at this one guy who's eating the, the dick. And they're like, oh, haha, you're eating his dick. And the other guy's like, yeah, I'm eating his dick because this guy has had sex with so many women, and I'm eating his dick, and this is gonna boost my testosterone. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my god, why? Why is this happening in front of me right now? <laughs> it was funny, you said, how is eating his dick less gay than eating his tongue and butt cheeks? <laughs> yes, yeah, because they're teasing him, calling him gay for eating the dick, while they're actively munching on his tongue and his butt and whatever. And I'm like, you're eating his ass right now. <laughs> And yes, I believe that rich douchebags would do things like this, but I don't believe that Steven Tyler would have chosen to play this game as an alternative to, I don't know, hosting a concert or reaching out to his many connections. Yeah, it's not Steven Tyler by name, by the way, you guys. We're just choosing the one, like, older, well-known rock star that we can think of. Insert your own if you want. That was the one I could think of who's, like, older and also still alive. Or set up a GoFundMe page. Yeah. Hey, it's it's mentioned that he still has plenty of fans, so he could Auction off like, his shit. <laughs> he could have been like, hey, I could get eaten if you guys don't contribute. Like, help a guy out here. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm just imagining this world where, like, Nick Cage or someone is like, oh, man, I could sell my third house in New Orleans for this. Or I could go spend two hours being hunted by a couple of rich douchebags and maybe die, but maybe I'll be fine. And that's what he goes with. <laughs> and you expect no one in the public to find out and be enraged about this? Yeah, that's the thing. They act like it's a secret. Like, you're telling me that they murdered this rock star. You, granted, he signed a contract. He agreed to it. But you're telling me that he, they murdered and ate this rock star, and there's not going to be a Facebook post being like, rest in peace, Steven Tyler killed on the game reserve. <laughs> they ate his dick. <laughs> you can't have these heavy censorship laws and still be this brazen about it. Yeah. They talk about, like, all the heavy censorship they've made, like, the fact that the, the movie The Birds, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, that's banned now. You can't find it anywhere, no one's allowed to watch it, they've destroyed all the copies, it's not on Netflix. Like you can't watch it anymore because it's all about birds that become evil and attack people and that that got too real i guess so now it's banned at least in this country so we're censoring that and we're censoring things like you're not allowed to call the meat people the products you're not allowed to call them humans like you're literally not allowed to call the special meat human meat you will get killed if you do that but at the same time people are allowed to raise humans in their home to eat slowly over time and that's totally fine yeah like you expect me to look another person in the eyes as i carve it up to eat it and be thinking to myself this is not a person this is a product this is not a people this is something else and it's like yes there are some freaking crazy ass people out there in the world that could do that. There are some psychos out there. I'm a true crime junkie. I hear all the time about people who depersonalize and dehumanize and torture people 
because that is what they do and that's what they get off on, whatever. But I like to have faith that the majority of the world population isn't like that. Mm-hmm. That most of the people in the world couldn't look into the eyes of another human and say, I'm going to kill you and eat you. And it's fine because you had your vocal cords cut out and a brand put on your forehead. And so therefore, you're not a person. Mm-hmm. And as far as this book is concerned, everybody... Except Marcos. Kind of including Marcos, kind but of except that Marcos. one guy that tried to free the cattle people. Oh yes, that was that was one interesting story. There was a guy who worked at the slaughterhouse, and after working there for a little while, he just kind of snapped and was like, fuck this, and tried to free all of the all of the product and was like, be free, be free. But because these people at this point have been raised in captivity, and like they're they've been shot up with so many drugs and hormones and whatever that they're just their brains don't work good. They have been mentally stunted intentionally and now are classified as vulnerable adults. Yeah. Yeah, these people would be considered vulnerable vulnerable adults in our society. They cannot speak, they cannot really think for themselves. They do not have cognitive reasoning skills. So like when he opens these pins and he's like run, be free, fight for yourself, whatever. They don't. Some of them kind of wander around in the same way that a cow would. If you open up a pin and say, run, be free, cow, the cow might wander around like, oh, what's this? Some grass? I love grass. But, like, they don't try to fight for themselves. They don't realize that they're people because they have been so doped up. And it's, like, it's really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Also, I'd like to point out one thing that does not lend to believability. Despite allegedly having a problem with overpopulation, the book does explicitly state that there were no food shortages. At the time that all this went down, there was ample vegetables and grains and other foods that people could have eaten to supplement meat. <laughs> but they got a doctor to go on the TV and say veggies are yucky despite everything we've known up until this point. <laughs> and people buy it. Yeah, they, they hired scientists and doctors to go on the internet and the television and stuff and say things like, you know, broccoli's bad for you. Meat is better for you than vegetables. Humans need meat to survive. It's like, Wow. And the thing is, that part was honestly one of the most believable parts of this, because I think about things I've learned recently about how, like, the Got Milk ads that we all remember from our childhoods, you know, celebrities with the milk mustache, and it'd be like, body by milk, you know? Oh, Got Milk, all that stuff. Those ads were by the dairy industry, and they were specifically meant to sell you milk. And they were in our schools and our playgrounds and wherever else that kids were going to be. And I mean, we were just having milk shoveled down our gullets for freaking decades. And so like, I I fully believe that there were ad campaigns being like, eat meat. Yeah, like, you know, like the I wonder beef, if it's what's for dinner. <laughs> I believe the ad campaigns 100%. I just don't know if I'm inclined to buy that after a lifetime of being taught that vegetables are good for you, the whole world's gonna do a 180 on vegetables yeah, in the age of social media. <laughs> particularly that the whole world's gonna do a 180 on vegetables in favor of human meat. Yeah. <laughs> I can believe that people who didn't like vegetables before are gonna turn and be like, hey, the doctor said I don't have to eat my vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> but then if they're like, well, instead of vegetables, you can always eat people, I feel like some people are gonna be like, pass the broccoli. <laughs> Um, 
I think we've covered every aspect of the unbelievability in this book. So let's move on. Yeah, that was literally note one. And <laughs> we've been on this for 45 minutes. I think it's the biggest note. Yeah. So let's move on to my next biggest note, which is the way the story is told. And maybe some of this could be chalked up to being lost in translation because this book was originally written in Spanish. But the book leans so heavily into the telling style instead of the showing style that we get almost no real formatted dialogue. And Marcos just tells us everything that's going on. And it feels so distant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not only is it like really distant in the way that it tells things in the lack of dialogue, like it'll have things like, you know, Marcos went into the office and he said hello to his boss and his boss said hello back to him and then his boss asked him about this and he asked him about that and there's no actual dialogue happening, they're just saying these things mm -hmm. and he asked him about this and he asked him about that and they're not actually having real dialogue. But also, there were points where like, we are so far removed from Marcos, we don't even learn his own name until chapter three. 3 and 8. We learn his last statement chapter 3, his first statement chapter 8, and this bothers me so much because if you're not intentionally withholding your character's name for the purpose of some kind of a reveal, mm -hmm. like, he's Bruce Wayne! <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, to make him seem like the everyman that you could put yourself in to varying degrees of success. Mm -hmm. But if you don't even have the intention of withholding it, it should be on page one. Mm -hmm. Like, it really should be. Yeah, because, you know, his name is Marcos Tejo, but we don't learn that for several chapters. And this is told from third person, but close perspective. So for the first three chapters, it's all just he. He gets in his car. He does this. He goes there. He talks to this person. He says that. He says this. Yeah, the author doesn't use his name in the narration. And this book is like... 85% narration. Yeah. Marcos is never referred to in third person as Marcos. It's only when other people are talking to him, which is why it's so long before we get his name. Is because that's how long it takes for a person to actually, like, speak to him directly and say, like, Marcos, I need those cows yesterday. <laughs> people cows? Those people cows. Those products. I need those products yesterday. <laughs> It takes that long for someone to actually say his name out loud because the author never refers to him as like, Marcos Tejo woke up in the morning and got in his car. It's always just, he woke up in the morning, he drank some mate and he got in his car. Mm -hmm. And it makes the book so difficult to read because most of the characters are men mm -hmm. and you'll be in a conversation with three or more men and they're all just he. <laughs> And it's really hard to keep track of what's happening. Yeah, and only like one or two of them will ever get names, and a lot of them get nicknames. Yeah, he gives people really mean nicknames because I guess he's a jerk, but we don't really get to know that because we don't see his thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, we don't get people's real names a lot. We get nicknames. Like there's El Gringo, mm -hmm. El Gordo, which is considered like a joke because they call him El Gordo, but the joke is that he was called El Gordo because he used to be fat. And for those of you who don't speak Spanish, Gordo means fat. But he's not fat anymore, so he refers to the guys El Gordo to other people are like, who's the hell is El Gordo? And he's like, it's this guy. And they're like, oh, he's not fat anymore. <laughs> and the butcher's assistant, he calls El Perro, meaning the dog. Yeah. Just because he has zero interest in actually learning the man's name, so he's just going to give him a mean nickname, because I guess he's a dick. Yeah, he just calls him El Perro, you know, the dog, the bitch. 
<laughs> whatever, because you work for her and I respect her, but I don't respect you. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're the dog. You're the assistant. I don't care about you. He's really not a likable character, and I don't think he's supposed to be, which is fine, but we are supposed to stick with him throughout this instead of putting the book down, mm-hmm. which is why there's usually some kind of likability to these characters, or at least empathy, and we can empathize with him losing his child, but... Yeah, there are only two real moments when I empathize with this man. One is when he talks about losing his child. Very sad. SIDS is a horrible thing to happen because it's so unexplainable, and it just... It tears a family apart. And then the other is there's a brief scene where he's he's hanging out with some dogs. He finds some puppies and he's hanging out with some puppies. And he's reminiscing about his dogs that he had to put down at the start of the pandemic and just thinking about some dogs and playing with some puppies. And I'm like, that's great. Love that for you. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes of that, the puppies. I mean, something does come of it, but nothing good comes yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah, we really could have cut the puppies completely and the book probably would have been better for it. Yeah, we could have had a different manner in which he could have talked about those dogs. We'll talk a little bit more about the puppies later. It's a different note. It's rough. Like, we're gonna put an extra trigger warning before the puppies. But yeah, the way the story is told, you don't really feel for him too much because you feel so distant from him and you don't feel like you can really get an understanding about who he is as a person. So you kind of just have to assume the worst rather than empathizing with him. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. The pacing. The pacing is also really kind of insane. Yeah, because this author likes to do short chapters, which is a good strategy for keeping people reading the story and probably contributed to us powering through this in a week. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I think chapter breaks should happen for a reason. And when you make like eight chapter breaks in the middle of the same scene, this could have been written better. It didn't have to be like this. We didn't have to keep interrupting the scene for a chapter break that serves no purpose. Yeah, and sometimes there are chapter breaks that the, you know, chapter that she puts in there will be two pages. Mm -hmm. Like, he'll be, you know, hanging out at home, and he'll be, like, with Jasmine or whatever. And then we'll have a chapter break, and in the chapter break, he's still at home hanging out with Jasmine, only now he's showing her how to use the shower and that chapter lasts two pages and then it changes again and now he's leaving the house but it's all the same day it's all within the same five minutes whatever it's like you could have had him showing her how to use the shower just in the last chapter you could have included that in the last chapter you didn't need a whole second chapter for that Mm -hmm. and meanwhile there are other chapters that like like the tour of the slaughterhouse There's a tour of the slaughterhouse at one point where he's showing two people who want to work in the slaughterhouse. Well, one of them wants to work in the slaughterhouse. One of them is pretending to apply for a job at the slaughterhouse because he really just wants to see people die. And he's giving them a tour, like, okay, you know, this is how all the different places work. This is where we kill them, and this is where we butcher them, and this is where we do this, and this is where we do that. And the whole thing takes about about 60 pages, so arguably long, worth breaking into a couple chapters. She breaks it into, I think, six chapters. Either six or eight. Yeah. Because we get the chapter where he shows up and introduces himself to the guys. We get two or three chapters where he shows them the place where they stun the animals. We get a couple chapters where he shows them where they slaughter the animals. Then we get several chapters where he shows where we show the butchering process. And there's no time gaps or any kind of, like, 
rise and dip in the action the whole time. It is literally a tour. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing takes about an hour to read, which is also about how long it would take to walk this tour. You basically go on a tour of the slaughterhouse. (laughs) The amount of time we spend in this book just touring different locations. This whole place is basically a tour of the human meat industry, because Marco's doing what's called the meat run, which means he's running out to different suppliers and distributors throughout the entire book. So we're just getting tour after tour of facility, and it is so exhausting to read. Yeah, because that's his job. He's the... He's the connections guy. He's the guy who goes to the tannery and goes to the butcher shop and whatever, and he gets all the orders. Then he goes to the place where they raise the people, and he's like, hey, we need this many of this kind and this color, and, you know, we need this many women and this many men, and whatever, and then he, you know, he makes the magic happen. That's his job. And I think the point is supposed to be that we're escalating the creep factor, but I feel like she kind of, like, played her hand a little too early because by the end of the first tour we already seen so much that by the time where we get to the, um, final tour, which is the laboratories where they do the testing on humans, we're totally desensitized to it. Oh yeah. And Marcos is so done at that point that he has no emotional investment in this, so the reader and Marco are just like, come on, yeah. <laughs> let's wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, he's so over it, he's done. And what's weird is that the the laboratory scene, so I feel like we need to talk about the laboratory scene again. The laboratory is the last tour we get. We get a tour of a tannery where leather is made, we get a tour of a butcher shop, We get a tour of the slaughterhouse, we get a tour of where they breed the animals, we get a tour of the hunting ground. And then the last place we get a tour of is the laboratory where they'd run human experiments for medical purposes. And we meet this woman named Dr. Volka, but he calls her Dr. Mengel, which is a reference to a Nazi doctor, experimenter, and overall horrible person. Mm -hmm. She shows him all the places where they are doing various experiments on humans and they're doing vivisection essentially but on people and the only thing that we really get out of that scene is a brief moment where he sees a room filled with animals in cages and he's like holy shit animals and he asks her if he's trying to if she's trying to find a cure for the virus and she like brushes him off and she's like well that's enough for today goodbye (laughs) and that is a that comes about three quarters or so of the way through the book, and it's kind of this moment where you're like, oh my gosh, are we actually going to get some answers about this freaking virus? Is there a cure? Is it a hoax? Like, are we finally going to get some answers? Because he's been told all the animals are either wild or dead. So the idea that there is a lab where animals are still being tested on would indicate that someone somewhere is still trying to fix this virus situation. People have been told that the virus is just here to stay and no one's trying to cure it anymore. Yeah, like, basically, we we stopped focusing on curing a deadly disease and instead started focusing all of our medical efforts on making GMOs for humans. Yeah. Priorities, people. Priorities. So, that's, like, a big moment. And then it never comes back. It's never addressed again. We just go through with the end of the story. And it, it's never brought up again. And it was so weird because it's like, Excuse me, I feel like that needed a lot more attention than it got. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we don't get any of it. So that sucked. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I do think that the laboratory scene is much more believable than the hunting grounds. I do too. Because 
again, Dr. Mangle, this did happen. Yeah, I mean, there's not a single experiment that's happening in that laboratory that was not either performed on humans during during World War II or during other atrocity times or is currently being performed on animals. Mm-hmm. There was not a single experiment that was happening in that laboratory that I was like, Psh, no one would, there's no purpose behind this. Nobody would ever do this on an animal or a human for any reason. Although I didn't really get the vibes that Dr. Volko was doing this out of purpose. Like I got the idea that she just wanted to do this all for funsies. I mean, yeah, she's definitely having too much fun with this. I did but... kind of love though how offended she was that he was not kissing her ass. <laughs> oh yeah. There's, there's this repeated thing where she keeps pausing for questions. Like, she's, she'll say something scientific or whatever, and then she'll pause for a question, and he won't ask it because he's not paying attention. And she'll go, what was that? And he'll go, I didn't say anything. It happens like five times, and I was laughing by the end. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure if I should be laughing in this scene. I, I was laughing. She's so clearly pissed off because she's expecting him to ask her questions like, whoa, that's so cool. You sewed their faces together. What do you achieve from that? Or like, how did you get the idea to put their head in a box and electrocute it? Or whatever the fuck horrible thing she's doing to people. And he's just not having it. He's so over it. He just wants to go home. And she's clearly expecting questions. She has this whole speech prepared. So every time she stops and is like, what was that? And she's expecting him to play and be like, oh, I said that that was so cool, or I had a question, or whatever. She's just like, I didn't say anything. And he gives her this look that's like, I'm not paying attention to you whatsoever. I came here to get your order and nothing else. I don't want a tour. Let me go home. (laughs) He goes to all these places to get their tours, but every single place is run by an eccentric rich douchebag, so they all just want attention from him. Yeah. And in the end, she's like, I'll just mail you the order. And I'm like, oh, oh, so you mean everyone could have just mailed in their orders, you know, like you would normally do. Yeah. But they just... (laughs) What is this man to them? Is he their therapist? This man exists. Why are they wasting the time of this man who supposedly has over 20 years experience and has way better things to do? This man exists purely for them to show off so that they can say, look at this innovative new thing we're doing. Look at our, look at our leather. We're using the, uh, we're using vitiligo skin to make this cool mottled leather. How cool is that? And he's supposed to be, oh, that's so cool, bravo. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. And he's just like, I don't have time for this. I am a busy man. I have a pregnant product at home. I just want to rub her belly all day long. Mm-hmm. Like, I have, I have a father dying of Alzheimer's. I have a bitch sister I need to deal with. Like, I am a busy man. I don't have time to rub your ego, even though that's what I'm paid to do. So I guess I do have time for it. But, like, by the end of it, he's just over it. He's so done. He's sick of it. (laughs) And I live for how sick of it he is. Because he's also a freaking hypocrite the whole time. Yeah, and I think that was one of the major themes of the novel is that this happens because all humans are hypocrites. (laughs) And I'm kind of like, yeah, I think you can make a pretty good case that almost all humans are hypocrites in one shape or another. But I think cannibalism is taking it a little far. Yeah, I feel like there's a difference between being a hypocrite, being like, lying is bad, and then turn around and tell your kids that Santa's real, versus, like, eating people is bad. Now I'm gonna go kill some people. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a there's a different line there. Mm-hmm. Also, there's the big fact that he 
he really judges anybody at all who seems to enjoy their job in the meat industry. He is so judgmental about everyone. He comes up with the mean nicknames. <laughs> but, like, he's really no better than them. Yeah, because, like, he he works in the meat industry. Could he not find another job? He has 20 years of experience in this industry. Can he not go work at some other kind of factory? Go work at a car parts arts factory, buddy. That's the excuse assigned to people staying in the meat industry is, well, I have this work experience and, you know, I need a job. And it's like, that's great, but really, you're going to retain all of your employees and get them to kill humans? Were there no other jobs? Mm-hmm. And Not diminishing that job accessibility is a serious issue in the real world, but, you know, we brought murder into this. <laughs> yeah, and like, especially for Marcos, who so clearly hates what he does or claims to but then he bends his own morals so fast Mm -hmm. because he's like i hate anyone that takes part in the uh the breeding and raising of human product well now that i have one i'm gonna have sex with her Mm -hmm. and then i'm gonna kill her right after she gives birth yeah and then i'm gonna kill her right after she gives birth I hate anyone who eats meat. I don't eat meat. I haven't eaten meat since the transition. Actually, no, that's not true. He's eaten meat since the transition. He hasn't eaten meat since his son died. <laughs> you know, he's like, I, I hate the meat industry and I won't eat meat anymore and blah, blah, blah. Well, these guys are looking at me pretty expectantly. I guess I'll eat a finger or two. <laughs> like, he, And then talks about how great it is. And then he talks about how tasty it is and how much he's actually missed meat, like a lot. And it's like, wow, you have no backbone. <laughs> like... If you want, in this world, not in the real world, I want to make this very clear, not in the real world, in this world specifically, if you want to take part in this industry, fine. I mean, not fine because it's cannibalism, but like, I guess in the perspective of this industry where your choices are limited and you're going to make that decision, I'm not saying it's fine, but I'm saying if you've made that decision, own it. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of where I'm at. If you're going to make a bad decision, own it. Like, if you're going to be a terrible person, own it. Don't make excuses and say that everybody else in the industry sucks, but you're a good person because at least you don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Fuck that. And you know, it's not just Marcos who's an unlikable douchebag hypocrite. There are no likable characters in the story, except maybe Jasmine, who was not classified as a person. Yeah, Jasmine is... The only reason Jasmine is a likable character in the story is because she's not a character she's not a character she has no autonomy she is the equivalent of the cute animal sidekick mm-hmm. and all you feel for her is just so much extreme sorrow and pity because she has no choices in anything that happens to her and it's fucking sad mm-hmm. she's like a child you know we talk about how they've been how these animal products, these human human animal products, have been mentally disabled by use of drugs and hormones and whatever else. Not to mention that they're pretty much raised in jars, and so they've been deeply neglected their whole lives. Yeah, in the case of Jasmine, she is what's called a first-generation pure product, meaning that she was bred in captivity. And is GMO-free. And is GMO-free. So, she has never been a human. She's never lived as a human. So when he puts her in his house, 
certain things happen, like she discovers knives. And the first thing she does is she cuts herself on a knife. And she just stares at it. And stares at the knife and stares at the blood and everything because she's never in her life experienced a sharp object and the ability to wield a sharp object. And this experience of hurting herself, you know, when she first discovers a stove, her first instinct is to just put her hand on it because she's never experienced fire before. And like, she burns herself, but then she goes in for it again because she, she wants to try it again. Like, she is a baby. Mm-hmm. You know, she's 20 years old, but she's a baby. Mm-hmm. She has no idea what she's doing. And it's just so sad because this man treats her like an animal at first. He keeps her in the barn. For like four days, he keeps thinking about the fact that she's so dirty and he needs to give her a bath, but he just can't be bothered because he doesn't have time. So she's just naked, tied up in his barn, pooping in a corner, drinking water out of a bowl. And then finally he decides to like give her a bath or whatever. And literally the moment he gives her a bath, he's like, oh, hey, she looks just like a human woman. Cause you know, she is. And he's like, well, time to rape her. Which it's, they're very specific about the fact that it is completely illegal to have sex with these creatures because very early on in the meat process, there were incidences of people buying these products that are supposed to be used for meat, but they were keeping them as sex slaves. And regular slaves. And regular slaves. And when people found out this was happening, they were like, we can be okay with cannibalism, but we draw the line at slavery. (laughs) This world is filled with the biggest bunch of idiots. (laughs) So then they made laws of, you know, if if you have a domestic product in your home, you can only use it for meat or like to breed it um and you can only breed it with artificial insemination and you can only breed it with the the semen from another product you can't breed it with your own semen things like that like they made all these rules about how you can and cannot use these creatures it's like it's as if they know they know deep down that something about this is very very wrong (laughs) They're just not capable of putting the pieces together. <laughs> yeah. And also, it says a lot about Marcos that he he claims to despise the meat industry so much. And it's even mentioned that he is actually the reason they have the law about no keeping your product as a sex slave. Because he was the one who discovered, very early on, he was working in, like, basically enforcement you know, he'd go to people's houses and make sure they were following protocols and whatever. And he discovered a person who was keeping a product as a sex slave. And he was like, shit, we haven't made rules about this yet. And so he made the rules. He's breaking the rule that he made. <laughs> and it says a lot about him that he's, the minute he gets one of these female products alone, he's like, I could make a baby with this. <laughs> like, why? Why? I mean, we know why. He wanted a replacement child. Yeah. He gets what he wants in the end, which is like, okay. Yeah, that's that's probably the worst thing, is that in the very end of all this, he and his wife are back together with a son now. And Jasmine's dead. 
why did Marcos deserve to get everything he wanted in the end? I mean, I know sometimes villains getting what they want in the end is, like, supposed to be the peak tragedy. We've had so many other tragedies up until this point that, like, I was so numb by the end. And they kept talking so much about how if he was caught, the punishment would be going to the slaughterhouse. I really thought this where this was going. Like, there was so much foreshadowing for that, and it was so wasted. I was so ready. <laughs> so ready for somebody to show up, discover what he was doing, and for our last image of Marcos to be him walking into slaughter. Yes, that would have been... That would have made all of this worth it. That would have been the best ending, and I would have loved it, and I would have been, I would have been fine with all the rest of this because it would have been this moment of Marcos having criticized people this whole time for their participation in this industry, while at the same time justifying to himself that these are not humans, while also knowing that they're humans because he calls them people in his mind, and then he corrects himself and says, ah, if I said that out loud, I'd get killed, and whatever else. And in the end... He becomes the product that he has killed this whole time, and it is comeuppance, and I would- That would have been perfect, but they didn't do that. <laughs> they didn't do any of that. Let's move along to how, despite this book being written by a woman, the female characters are all really weirdly written. Yeah, not only is this written by a woman, because you can- You can get books that are written by women that treat women weird, but this woman says- Augustina says that this is a feminist book. That she she had intentions of feminism when writing this. And yet there's this very odd thing with the woman characters. Of you're either maternal or a bitch. <laughs> Those are the two types of woman you can be. And maybe you could argue that that's how Marco sees the world. <laughs> we only get... We, we get a decent number of women characters in this book. But they all fall into one of those two categories. Motherly figure or bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cecilia is a motherly figure. She's not good at being motherly because she has fertility issues, but she tries, and that's what matters. Mm -hmm. uh, the nurse at the at the old people's home, mm -hmm. maternal. She's a good one. We like her, except sometimes she gets naggy. Yeah, but you know, and then she needs to be put in her place. And then she needs to be put in her place. And uh, and then Jasmine, of course, mm -hmm. the breed mare. She's she's obviously maternal because she's being used for breeding, and she can't talk. She can't talk. She's used for breeding. She's super innocent. So, of course, she's the peak, beautiful, perfect woman mm -hmm. here because, you know, she's, oh, you know, she's what every man wants. A woman who just pumps out babies and never speaks. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you get to eat her. <laughs> and then we have the, the secretary. I can't remember her name right now, but the secretary. Yeah. She's like a really sweet, you know, oh, Marcos, I'm so glad to see you. Let me get you some tea, la di da di da You know, that kind of secretary woman. So she's nice. We like her. She And she's got a frail... She's so frail. Oh, gosh. <laughs> she's so frail that when the scavengers attack that bus full of cargo people and it's a bloodbath, she's only upset that they killed the driver. <laughs> yes. Yes, she's so upset that they killed the driver. Like, thousands of product are killed, but... The driver died. A, a human! A human being! Fuck all those other humans that are not humans. A, a human being that we know. Uh, they, they refer to them as meat with a first and last name. Mm -hmm. Also, like, they talk about the scavengers that sit outside of the meat plants. Who are these people? They're supposedly not an overpopulation problem right now. In fact, I'd say there's likely a population deficit right now. 
there should be plenty of open jobs available. Also, if there's scavengers just sitting outside the meat plant stealing meat, why aren't we turning them into meat? Also, like, why aren't... Again, there's no food shortage. There's no food shortage at any point. <laughs> so why are they staking out the heavily guarded meat plant? The argument is it's because they can't afford meat. So eat vegetables. Yeah. No one's protecting the broccoli plant because vegetables are <laughs> yucky. <laughs> yeah, so the idea here is that they can't afford meat. And while they could afford vegetables, they could go buy vegetables, they'd be fine. They want meat. So they're just gonna sit outside the plant with machetes, <laughs> looking scary. Until somebody throws some meat that doesn't, you know, reach the bar. <laughs> some like, oh, this has some disease in it or whatever, we can't sell this, and they just yeet it over the fence, and then these guys hack it up and they're like, ah, I got an arm! <laughs> but like, these people, they act like zombies. <laughs> they do. But like, who are they? Why are they doing this? Yeah, we get no explanation as to exactly who these people are, just they are bands of people, men, women, and children, who kind of all live together, and, uh, oh, and there's a curfew, because if you're out after dark, they will capture you and eat you. Why don't these people go live in the woods where there's probably ample forageables? I know the deadly animals are there, but these people are already taking chances with their lives. They already have machetes? <laughs> like, just, I, it, the scavengers are definitely the biggest part that, like, doesn't make sense, because you get the idea that this is supposed to be, like, the homeless, but, like, when was the last time you saw a raving band of homeless people with machetes just chilling outside the Winn-Dixie waiting to attack the dumpster. Usually they can just walk into the dumpster. Yeah, like, it's, you know, dumpster diving is generally a non-violent defense. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, getting back to the point, men don't get the best treatment either in this book, as every man in this book is terrible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I also didn't mention the, uh, yeah, men men are terrible. Also, there's a there's an added thing with the women. Mm -hmm. uh, they specifically mention that men, even men who have been birthed into being meat, they will be fighters, like the hunting people. They always want men to hunt. Or pregnant women. Or pregnant women. Because women won't fight for their lives unless they're pregnant. The more pregnant, the better. Because if a woman's pregnant, then she'll fight for her baby's life. She won't fight for her own. Women are too submissive for that. But if they're pregnant, then they become just vicious. I know we're relying on nature in this mindset, but I don't think these women fully comprehend that they're pregnant in the first place. <laughs> so why would this be a factor? Yeah, and even if they do... I'm sorry, have you ever met a female animal? Like, I think about our cat. <laughs> our cat is spayed. She's never been pregnant. She will never be pregnant. Mm -hmm. But if you come at her with something even as inconvenient as we're going to put you in the crate, she will kill you. <laughs> so I'm calling complete bullshit on the women will only fight for their lives if they're pregnant argument. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I can believe that maybe they'll fight a little harder, mm -hmm. but only to a certain extent. I think these guys just like killing pregnant women. Yeah, I think that's a very legitimate thing to draw from that. Because <laughs> they're all terrible. <laughs> but yeah, men don't get the best treatment either. Touching back on women, though, what was the point of Spinel's character? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spinel was the butcher. She and Marcos had had a previous relationship, like, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's implied that she took his virginity mm -hmm. 
at the slaughterhouse on the butchering table. Gross. And then partway through the book, Marcos, out of nowhere, goes and has sex with her again. And she's never heard from again. We get a lengthy and disturbing sex scene of them having sex on a used butcher's table. Last time it was clean. This time they're just doing it under the bleeding human arm. Yeah, there's there's literally blood dripping down onto his dick and he's making her lick it off. <laughs> yes. But also, though, all of the, the special meat is supposed to be pre-bled, so I'm just gonna assume that she killed someone in the alley to get this. Yeah, because she's actively butchering it, and we know that from that she gets most of her meat for sale from his processing plant, where they pre-bleed and butcher everything and send it wrapped up nicely packaged. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that didn't come from my plant. Where'd you get this person? He pays no attention to that, though, mm-hmm. and just has sex with her out of nowhere for no stated reason. And then she's never heard from again. Yeah. What was the point of that? There... I, I think it's maybe supposed to be showing, like, his devolving. But I really don't know. Because the only thing I gleaned from that was that Marco was, Marcos was losing it. Because one of the things that he keeps talking about is how he's, like, actively trying to hurt her during this sex. I'm just gonna get really graphic for a minute here, so trigger warning for like some really violent sex for a moment he's like bending over her over tables and making her choke on his dick that's covered in blood and like forcing her up against the uh the refrigerator door which is clear and you can see all the frozen arms and legs and stuff inside of it and whatever else and he keeps making these comments that in his mind that basically state if she tried to stop him right now she's not trying to stop him she's clearly enjoying this but if she tried to stop him he wouldn't stop. Yeah. Because he's here to get what he wants, whether she wants it or not. Yeah, it's implied that he kind of wanted this to be rape, but they already had a pre-established relationship and she already likes him and she thinks he's not with his wife right now, so she's into it. Yeah. And she, neither of them are talkers, so they just go for it. Yeah, there's, there's no discussion. He literally walks in and just grabs her <laughs> and starts going to town. But she loves rough, violent sex, so she's like, hell yeah! Fuck me under this bleeding arm. Yeah, I mean, she was holding a knife when he came in, so it's not like she couldn't have defended herself. Yeah. And it's just, it's this really weird thing that it's like, it's almost like a rape fantasy, but it's not discussed in any manner. And it's also kind of implied that she sort of did the same thing to him back when she took his virginity, because it's mentioned that she just, he says that she just pushed him in, laid him down on the table, climbed on top of him, and went to town without really saying anything, and that he was sort of surprised and like oh my god she's just riding my dick so this is kind of the relationship they have where they just use each other sexually and the whole thing is just really disturbing especially because we only do get two scenes with her we get the scene where we meet her and we learn about her butchering business is and that they know each other and that she took his virginity and then we get this um also El Pedro, her assistant, is watching angrily through the locked the window in the locked door the whole time and actively trying to get in because he thinks his boss is being assaulted, but can't get in. And Marcos is glaring at him the whole time, like, yeah, I'm fucking your boss and you can't do shit about it. <laughs> and it's just it's such a weirdly violent, disturbing sex scene that serves very little purpose aside from, I guess, to show that Marcos has a problem with women? I don't know. I think we could have gleaned that already. That he has a weird relationship with sex? Because I guess it's the first time he's had sex since his wife left? Like, I... And then, like, literally two chapters later, 
12 hours in book time. He was the same chapter. He had sex with Jasmine in the same chapter. Same Oh, right, because he literally, he leaves there, he goes home, and he gives her a bath, and he has sex with her. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a commentary on him behaving like an animal? That could be it. I don't know. I have, I have no idea. I feel like there's gotta be some reason that it's there, but I'll be damned if I know what it is. I kind of assume that since Cecilia comes back at the end, him being with Spinel was gonna play a part, you know, for plot. <laughs> Yeah, the the spot where this ends, there's so much left undone. Mm-hmm. Like, we just had this major attack at the plant where they attacked a truck and killed all- the scavengers attacked a truck and killed all the product inside of it as well as the driver and are just fucking eating raw meat and cutting off arms and whatever in the street and it's a bloodbath and things are on fire and everyone's freaking out. Meanwhile, he also has put his job in jeopardy by upsetting Dr. Volka, mm-hmm. and he's also been with Sunel at some point, and he's alienating his sister because he feels no need to have a relationship with her after his father died, and he hates her for reasons that are never fully explained, and none of it goes anywhere. Yeah, and then the ending is just, and then he kills Jasmine, and the end. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so we don't get to find out what happens at the plant in the wake of this disaster, we don't get to find out if he what eventually becomes of his sister. I assume they never speak again. We don't get to find out what happens with Spinel. All we know is he and Cecilia have a baby now, happily ever after. Okay. <laughs> okay. The plot's got really kind of a mess, especially the lack of plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we keep trying to go back to the fact that in addition to women, men don't get the best treatment in this book either. Every man in this book is either a depressed shell of a man who's doing horrible things just to get by because he's got to provide for his family. Or he's a sadistic murderer and usually a rapist. Mm-hmm. Those are the two kinds of men. If there's two types of women, maternal and bitch, then there's two kinds of men, sad or evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Marcos is a weird conundrum because he thinks he's the first type, just doing whatever he can to get by, suffering in this world that just takes and takes and never gives back. But like, He's a murderer and a rapist who thinks he's the good guy. Mm-hmm. So. It really would have tied together so great if he got killed at the slaughter plant. I at the wish end. he died at the end. And maybe Spinel serves him up or something like that. You know, something to tie this blank together. Yeah, Spinel serving his head on a platter. <laughs> Speaking of dangling plot threads, he keeps coming back to the zoo, which he knows is extremely dangerous, and he almost dies there a few times. But he keeps coming back to this abandoned zoo because I guess it reminds him of his childhood. Yeah, there's this zoo that he used to visit with his father, is what he says. When he when he was a child, before animals were evil, he and his father used to go to this zoo. Now the zoo is abandoned, all the animals have been killed, the whole place is destroyed, it's graffitied, it's trash, it's awful. And he goes into the zoo to, like, smoke and think. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, he ends up scattering his father's ashes in the birdhouse there, because he thinks that's what his father would have wanted. And then he fills the jar up back with dirt and gives it to his sister who asked for his ashes, because he hates her. Because he hates her. Like, he even purposely, like, puts garbage and his dead cigarette and whatever on there, like, just to really fuck her up. And there's even this, like, moment where he tears down the sign that has the name of the zoo. We never actually learn the name of the zoo, but he tears the sign down, and he's like, now it's a zoo with no name. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, he calls it the zoo with no name. Is he trying to dehumanize it? Like how they dehumanize 
the animals by stripping away their names and how names are like connected to personhood. But it was a zoo. It wasn't a person in the first place. Yeah, maybe it's I'm like trying to connect to pull some meaning from this. Yeah, and there's also like a kind of mixed metaphor with in the birdhouse. There's a picture of there's a stained glass picture of Icarus on the ceiling, and he talks about how his father says, you know, Icarus. Most people think it's a cautionary tale about pride, but he doesn't see it that way because, you know, the message behind Icarus is he fell, but he flew, and it's okay to fall as long as you fly first. Which doesn't make any sense because Icarus was not the only one flying that day, he's just the only one who fell. Yeah. Daedalus got to fly and not die. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like he's picking the wrong thing out of the story. Yeah. It, it's just another one of those situations, just like we had in My Sister's Keeper, of... Greek mythology being used in a way that just doesn't seem to make sense mm -hmm. because they're just picking like one imagery and then just kind of twisting it to fit the story rather than actually following what the myth is mm -hmm. and so then if you know anything about the myth you're like that doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> at least he blew don't be cautious. <laughs> yeah, don't be cautious. Fly too close to the sun and too close to the water and just drown. <laughs> it's all good. And the thing is, that could have worked if he died at the end. I know. Because <laughs> if he died at the end, then he could think, but I had a son. I flew. Yes. <laughs> God, that would have worked so much better. I'm so mad. <laughs> like, I thought I was just kind of mad on the ending, but the more I think about it, I'm like, gosh, this... The ending really ruins the book, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, you could make the argument that it's sadder this way, but does sadder really equal better? Yeah. I mean, this whole book was sad. We saw people eating people. I need to say the last line of the book. So if you're planning on reading the book, I don't know, skip ahead ten seconds. He's just killed Jasmine after she's given birth. And his reasoning for why he kills her is he says she had the look of a domesticated animal. The human look of a domesticated animal. The human look of a domesticated animal. She had the human look of a domesticated animal. And that is the end of the book. And I don't know what the fuck that line means. <laughs> I think maybe he's trying to say that he was treating her too much like a pet. Or maybe it's a commentary on about how all domesticated animals have the same innocent look as humans, therefore eating meat is bad. We haven't really been focusing on eating meat as a whole being bad. It would have made more sense if he just said she looked at me like a human. Yeah. But by saying she had the human look of a domesticated animal, it's like, so what do you mean the human look of a domesticated animal? Like, she looked at you like she was sad? She looked at you like a cow? She looked innocent? I mean, we know she looked innocent. That's how she's looked this whole time. She looked at you with love? Like, she looked at you like, help me? I, what kind of look are you talking about? Because I've looked into the eyes of a lot of dogs, a lot of cats couple of cows, some horses, some pigs, and, and never once have I looked into the eyes and gone, oh, this animal's seen too much, it has to die. <laughs> <laughs> Should we go into nitpicks? Yeah, nitpicks. Um, first thing I didn't like, this book began with three quotes. I hate it when authors do that. <laughs> I, I really hate when authors start a book with quotes. If it's just one quote, it's like, okay, you got your one quote, like, I'm just gonna... <laughs> Fine. She starts the book with three quotes, and then she starts part two with another quote. Mm -hmm. And that's my nitpick, is she starts part two with a quote from Sam Beckett. Mm -hmm. 
I have this opinion on Samuel Beckett. He's an absurdist. Mm -hmm. Don't quote him out of context. It will never, ever, ever make sense. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense in this. It won't make sense anywhere else. It never does. And people love to quote him because they're like, Samuel Beckett, he's deep. And yeah, some of his shit is deep. But he's an absurdist. And when you quote an absurdist out of context, it is always going to sound like it makes... Absurd? (laughs) Like it makes no sense. Yeah, and the the other three quotes that she started the book with, they didn't make much sense either. No, like, you're starting a book, we have zero context. Your quotes only work if we have the context for it, therefore they usually only make sense on the second read-through. Don't start your book with quotes, okay? Yeah. And, you know, if it was, like, one quote, I think one of the quotes was something biblical about, like, eat of the flesh or whatever. And, like, one quote like that. One quote. Fine. Mm-hmm. One quote. To let us know, hey... This quote is on theme. It's on brand with my book. This is something I want you thinking about. Mm-hmm. But once you have three quotes and they're all different and they all follow different themes, it's like, okay, now now I feel like I'm about to read an English essay. Mm-hmm. Now I feel like these quotes exist purely so that when I write an English essay on this, I have a couple of key quotes that I can go to as secondary sources and say this book is about this because the author starts with a quote about this. Mm-hmm. And I don't need that. I can write my own essay, thank you. (laughs) Another nitpick. We talked about the weird pacing, how there are some chapters that are weirdly short. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about the three-page-long sentence. I don't know if it's three pages in the physical book. We read this on an audio... uh, Not an audio book, a Kindle book. So the pages are a bit shorter. But even on a regular book, I feel like this was at least a page long. On my... Kindle, I had to swipe three times to get through one sentence. Yeah, we're at the end of a chapter, and he decides to sum up his entire life in a run-on sentence that goes on for miles. Yeah, he's describing the he's describing the very difficult process of infertility tre- of fertility treatment that he and Cecilia went through. And he's like, it started with this test, and then this, and then this, and then this, and this happened, 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 and this happened. And it goes on for three pages of a Kindle on an iPhone. So, in a real book, probably like a whole page. It goes on for basically a paragraph's worth, a very long paragraph's worth, with just commas. No other punctuation, one sentence, and in one very long, arduous sentence, (laughs) split by only commas, he describes four years of fertility struggles. And it is the weirdest thing to read, especially reading it out loud. Mm -hmm. Because you're reading it out loud and you're like, and then came the low sperm count tests, and then came the eggs and then came this and she asked shouldn't i be producing more eggs and the doctor said no and then uh, there came the magazines in bathrooms where he had to jerk off into a cup and then came the mother's days where she felt sad because she wasn't a mother and then came this and then came that but it's all one sentence written like that Mm -hmm. that was just a weird thing it's like you have chapters that are shorter than this sentence (laughs) 
I didn't even hate the sentence itself necessarily because I felt like it did adequately sum up fertility struggles, but it also really didn't need to be one sentence. It didn't need to be one sentence. Like, it would have been a fine paragraph mm -hmm. if she could have just broken that up into a few sentences instead of one long sentence. Mm -hmm. like, I feel bad for whoever has to record the audiobook for that. Mm -hmm. That leaves us with the puppies. Yeah, our last nitpick is the puppies. So, this is a big trigger warning for animal cruelty. These puppies do not get treated well. It was arguably more disturbing than anything that happened to humans in this book. It was. So if that is something that's going to make you very upset, very uncomfortable, I would suggest skipping forward to the final thoughts. We will uh, we'll put like a time stamp down in the show notes so that you can skip to that. Just heads up on the puppies. So he finds these puppies in the zoo. Four little puppies. He gives them all names. I think they're supposed to all be named after rock stars because one of them is named Jagger. Mm -hmm. And they're just these cute little puppies and he plays with them for hours. And this is kind of the moment where you realize he doesn't believe in the virus because he's playing with these puppies and he's batting them around he's letting them nibble on his hands and he's just having a great time with these puppies and he's becoming super attached and he's reminiscing on when he used to have dogs and he's having a great time with these puppies and then the puppy's family shows back up the adult dogs and of course by this point these dogs have learned to fear humans so the adult dogs scare him off and are like Rawr! he runs away he comes back to the zoo a few days later and he hears human voices near where he saw the puppies and he heads over there and he realizes a couple of teenage boys have found the puppies and are torturing them. They are throwing them against walls, hitting them with sticks. And uh, he eventually leaves when one of them decides to light a puppy on fire. They're torturing these puppies and it is the saddest fucking thing because he's sitting there listening to it happen. And he can even hear which puppy it is he's using their name saying oh that one that just had that bad thing happen to it that was jagger that was wood and the whole time he's not doing anything about it because marcos never does anything about anything but also because he's an older man and these are teenagers and there's four of them and he's afraid that if he intervenes they'll attack him um, it's possible but Considering that he is an older man, he could have at least attempted to break this up at any time. He could have pretended to care for their safety since these animals are supposedly diseased. Yeah. He could have left, but he just watches this all play out. Yeah, until eventually they get to, let's light this last one on fire, and then he's like, nope, I can't stomach this, I'm leaving. <laughs> and it's like, we couldn't stomach this. You made us read all of this. Mm -hmm. And also it's like, where are the big dogs now? The six big dogs that chased you away and almost killed you. Where are they now while the puppies are getting beaten? I just, it was, it made me sick. Mm -hmm. I understand that the purpose of it was to show Marcos in a human light compared to these just fucking awful teenagers. But it fails at that? But it kind of failed because he doesn't do anything to stop it. He just feels bad. Or maybe it wasn't meant to show him in a human light, but to just show how he lacks any motivation to do anything about his surroundings 
I don't know what the point was. It just felt unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. It, and again, we could have cut this whole scene and nothing would have changed. It's, it's very weird that in a book that is entirely about the systemic slaughter of humans for consumption, there would be a scene that we're like, that's too far. But that scene was too far. Mm-hmm. Be- especially because we spent a whole chapter with him playing with these puppies and getting to know them and love them. And, like, I want him to take these puppies home. Yeah. That could have been another one of his crimes when they eat him at the end. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe we could have watched these kids get mauled by dogs, because that would have... That would have been great. Yeah. But at this point, I don't think this serves any purpose other than just to be cruel to the reader. Yeah. So that's very sad. Too sad. Mm-hmm. So that's a big... Eesh. Moving on to final thoughts. A book about cannibalism should make us feel something. It should elicit some form of intense emotion. And Tender as the Flesh doesn't do that. It combines disturbing imagery with a lot of moments and themes that you get the feeling are supposed to be deep and moving, but the writing is so distant that we were left feeling dumb. Like, there was all this symbolism that is clearly supposed to mean something and we're just too dense to put it together. But the harder we look, the more we realize it's not us. We're not missing some deeper thread here. The message is very surface level. Hypocrisy is bad. We are hypocrites. We as humans mistreat each other and we mistreat animals. There's nothing more there. No deep message on the futility of doing the right thing or a guide to how to be better or even a comeuppance for anyone's wrongdoing in the end. Just the message that we all use and abuse each other to get what we want, and that's bleak as hell. I just wanted to make a note real quick that this time we wrote our final thoughts together because we're exactly on the same page with this. Yes. So if you're confused, there was just one this time? Yeah, there was just one this time because we agreed completely on this. Mm-hmm. So for my final ratings, I give this book two out of five jars of hearts. And I am going to give this book two and a half out of five collapsed ecosystems. As always, our ratings are subjective. Give us your notes at Twitter at Couple of Notes, or to supply us with red pins, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash couple of notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll meet back here after the next chapter. <laughs>